That was Out of Gear by Los Straitjackets, and this is episode 360, which is kind of a arbitrary um, marker for the cast, and um, I'm thrilled that we've reached the 360-degree point. I won't have access to my particular computer on which I do these casts for a couple of weeks, so this is my last cast for a few weeks, and it does sum up a thought I've been giving you in recent casts, but with a little bit of, um, I hope, greater experience depth, hopefully, and uh, a, a little bit of... Uh, acquiescence in what happens when you look for the sources of creativity and inspiration when other things have kind of uh, fallen by the wayside or they are things from which you have become detached, partly because of age, partly because of experience, partly because of disappointment, and yet you still want to be in touch with the sluices of hope and the sluices the fountains, the wellsprings of optimistic and inspired activity. I was recently with a chap named Bob Giese, a terrific guy from my school. He was having his, I think, 56th class reunion. And um, I said to him just casually, hey, Bob, what have you been doing these days since you've been retired? And he's done a lot, I know, in the past and committed himself wonderfully to all sorts of projects and uh, important um, institutions. And uh, he said, you know, I, 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 I can't answer that question. People ask me all the time, he said, what are you up to now that you're retired? And I said, I can't answer the question. I don't accept the question. I said, why is that? He said, well, because I don't get up in the morning and say to myself, what exactly am I going to do today? It's not because I don't have anything to do. I've got plenty in my mind. I've all sorts of things come to hand that seem to me to be worthwhile, but I don't think of it as a kind of a thing anymore. I don't think of my day as a thing. <clears throat> and I was very impressed by that, by PZ, because um, that I would agree. People are constantly saying, well, what are you up to? You know, are you writing? Um, what are you reading? And in fact, um, and I, I never can answer it because it doesn't. I no longer feel connected to the question of what exactly am I doing. In fact, empirically speaking, and if it were under observation, one is doing a lot, a lot of new books, a lot of new material, a lot of writing, a lot of contacts, a lot of mentoring, a lot of thoughts, a lot of um, movies, and a lot of uh, podcasts. There's plenty going on, but I don't see it. Uh, this is important because it would be, I wish I'd gotten that way earlier. I wish in earlier life I'd been less detached to some kind of a, a, a picture or an objective sense of what the day was about. And rather, you know, like Christ talked about, sufficient end of the days of the evil thereof, and moment to moment, live, uh, you know, live uh, without uh, attachment both to uh, results, uh, upshots, nor uh, even your life is no longer a thing. And that's what I really want to talk about. And I want to talk about it in terms of a little bit less straitjackets, as I've said before, but also in terms of monster movies and childhood interests, but most importantly, in terms of the roots of God-given creativity. Now, um, Someone whom I admire very much, whom I've never met in person, but I've followed, is named Bill Warren, and he's an aficionado with great, great learning and considerable wit for science fiction movies of the 50s and 60s. He knows a very great deal, and he wrote a book that I think is now a classic called Keep Watching the Skies, and in this book, he catalogs of hundreds of films of that nature. We would usually call them B, if not C, movies for the most part. Sci-fi, flying saucer, uh, 
whatever you want to call them, sci-fi movies of an era that now is mainly considered camp, and I don't really uh, see myself as loving them because of camp, sort of an Oscar Wilde kind of a sacralization of the mundane to make some kind of uh, humorous uh, um, superior point. Uh, I, I actually love them for their own sake, but in, and Bill Warren does, and in his description of a movie that I don't have the date of um, called uh, Port Sinister, a movie that one has actually seen, he says this, although the producers had started promisingly with The Man from Planet X, their later science fiction films were considerably worse, indicating they didn't learn from their mistakes. Port Sinister confirms this. Everyone chases everyone else around through bubbling lava and in and out of ruins. Giant crabs living on the island attack the people but apparently kill only bad guys. All the good guys get away. Those bad guys who survive the crabs are trapped as the island sinks again. Warren concludes his wonderful review. No reviewer that I have encountered mentions the giant crabs, so they apparently form a small part of the proceedings. But even giant crab devotee Don Willis says that Port Sinister is, quote, one of the lesser giant crab films, end of quote. Now, that is one of my favorite passages in all of Bill Warren, which is hundreds and hundreds of pages, where he describes Port Sinister as one of the lesser giant crab films. Now, think about that. Um, I used to say to people that Port Sinister is probably at the top of the second rank of giant crab movies, and I thought it was hysterical, and no one laughed, because these movies are, I mean, imagine that. Just imagine the whole a whole file filled with movies with giant crabs. I mean, it's, it's just wonderful. And I want to parenthetically say this, this interest of mine, which I shared with my childhood friends, both of whom are dead now, we, um, we really were totally captivated, and we didn't really care what anyone thought. We were captivated by these movies. We saw them on shock theater on late night on Saturday nights, but then we went to every single Saturday matinee we could possibly go to. I can list them all. They're as powerful for me as, uh, you know, if I'd been at Valley Forge. They were definitive when we were nine years old and ten years old. This was all we lived for because it was kind of a, it was a fantasy. It was very cool. It, it, it was very a boy thing, a little boy thing. It was scary and cool and monsters, and we just lived for this stuff. And um, parenthetically, I was going to say that as I I'm part, therefore, of a kind of brotherhood, an unofficial brotherhood of, of young boys who grew up on uh, Famous Monsters magazine and so forth, and Fari Ackerman, and loved these movies to distraction. They defined our boyhood, and there's a brotherhood out there of people, and I know a number of them, and some of them are really fine artists and very, very good literary folk. But I do notice one thing, that among some of the finest uh, and best, and I'm thinking of four or five that I can think of right now of my contemporaries, whom I haven't, for the most part, met in person, they detest Christianity. It's almost as if... I, I, I read something that someone has written on a subject, a movie that I love, like um, When Worlds Collide, and it really becomes a diatribe against Christianity or Christian attitudes or sort of post-code Hollywood <clears throat> needs to satisfy some kind of Christian or Catholic or evangelical middle American constituency. <clears throat> 
and the degree of uh, antagonism towards Christianity in particular makes me sometimes wonder, in some cases, was the love of these movies really born out of some kind of anger against parents or a culture in which these movies were considered naughty or immoral or not to be viewed, and therefore the love of a, of a movie like Project Moonbase or Port Sinister or Attack of the Giant Leeches, which is a great one, or the the one, uh, uh, the 50-foot woman, you name it, were they maybe a kind of, um, was, was it sort of an act of rebellion against the church? Because so much anti-Catholicism and anti-evangelicalism, one of the two, comes into the written works of so many of these people. I wonder... What is going on? Because for what it, whether it was good or bad, we were not infected with that element. We love the movies just as much as the people who do websites or do uh, actually make these movies. And we made them ourselves. We made two monster movies, and one when we were 12, and one when we were 13, and then another when we were 14. Three summers successively making supernatural horror films that were both terrible and wonderful because we were had just we weren't even super eight it was pre super eight it was eight millimeter and little home editing machines and we spent our entire lives for three summers making Frankenstein and Dracula and then a Ray Bradbury story called Fruit at the Bottom of the Bowl we were only we were barely teenagers and um, this uh, it never occurred to us probably because we all went to an Episcopal school and our parents were all basically liberal when it came to religion not basically were liberal when it came to religion so the kind of Christianity we received while it was um, while it was uh, pretty antiseptic and I would say relatively low cal to say the least low cal and not very vertical much more horizontal didn't at least attack us there was no heavy moralism about sex or heavy moralism about this that or the other thing and it wasn't grounded in conservative politics far from it so maybe that's why but I do want to just note that I'm surprised how anti-Christian a number of the brotherhood come across today when it just wasn't even a an element we were we were not really interested in that at all uh, as i remember we were we just wanted to go see the next roger corman edgar allan poe movie down at lowe's capitol theater or palace theater in downtown washington now um where am i going with that why could you care about what i'm saying about age 13 and 14 well because it's out of gear the wonderful thing about being interested in something ridiculous like um, those movies or something that's apparently ridiculous that's both totally important and completely ridiculous at the same time Justus simul et, at the same time, ridiculous and important, is that it kind of um, gives you a sense of humor about everything. It's out of gear. The interest in these movies, uh, you know, The Pit and the Pendulum, (laughs) The Tomb of Lygea, (laughs) Tales of Terror, The Premature Burial, it's... um, it's out of gear. It was out of gear then. It was it was out of the conventional, the world's repetitive desire to get you pigeonholed in some form of narrative about life or achievement or money or success or failure or <clears throat> disability or um, being in or being out or being a nerd or being um, cool or going out with girls or being feeling very uncomfortable, you know, with a girl you'd never met, let alone asking them for a date when you went to an all boys school, uh, et cetera, et cetera. It's really, um, we were out of gear. When we when we went to, to do these movies, we were out of gear. When we stayed up on Saturday night to watch Ghost of Frankenstein, <clears throat> we were out of gear. And uh, when we made um, 
uh, actually Frankenstein in uh, 1963, the summer of 63, we were out of gear when we snuck over into the grounds of the Russian embassy in the summer of 64, which was right after the Cuban Missile Crisis. And you were not allowed to go in there because you, you know, it was like James Bond. Were there dogs there to get you? Were there cameras on every tree? You know, would they shoot you? But we didn't care because we loved the fact that where we near where the, we lived in Northwest Washington, what's called uh, Cleveland Park, there was um, this sort of mysterious forested area called Trigarin, which was synonymous with the Russian embassy. And we snuck in. We snuck in twice to film a important sequence in which Jonathan Harker, Dracula's visitor, encounters a Transylvanian peasant who says, Do you not know that it is Valpurgis Nacht and you cannot go to Castle Dracula, but take this cross, if only for your mother's sake? And that was in 1964 in the forbidden forest of the Russian embassy. It was so cool, but we were out of gear, and you need to be out of gear, because if you're in gear... <clears throat> then it's just the same old, same old, same old, same old. I'll give you an example. Um, I personally uh, am very um, concerned about the lifting of Title 42 on the, America, the America's southern border. You and I can happily differ on all sorts of issues, but that and that, that issue we can differ. I'm fully accepting of your difference, and if you'll at least tell me, let me tell you mine, which I'm not going to do now, but I'm, I was, that, that upset me this week, and I, uh, and uh, because of implications that it has for our futures, especially our children and grandchildren, and um, again, tolerant of differences on these things, I hope you are, but I said to Mary, I said, you know, what, I feel hopeless, how can, nothing seems to be able to be done, anyone who disagrees with a particular important uh, and decisive policy, there's no way anything can be done about it. So I, I'm praying now for a, uh, for, for God, I said, to, to do something major, some major intervention, sort of like the Red Sea, you might say, or, uh, you know, um, Mount Sinai, or, you know, walking on the water, something major needs to happen. She said a very interesting thing. She said, well, it could be that, she said, but it, God is in it, she said, but it could be that, that this in itself is God's judgment on contemporaneity that whatever you see about this situation could be seen as God's judgment on American contemporaneity. Or it could be that God, as he often did in the Bible, removed himself. You know, we have that, um, that famous uh, <clears throat> antiphonal response versicle in the old prayer book, take not thy Holy Spirit from us. And it was cut in 1979. You, you no longer say that in the Episcopal Church in the prayer book. Um, take not thy Holy Spirit from us, because it was considered to be false to the view that, well, the Holy Spirit's always with us. How can God take away his Holy Spirit? Although he does in the Old Testament, and it's warned against in the New Testament, whether you believe it or not, whatever you think of the Holy Spirit. We inherited for 400 years the imprecation, please take not thy Holy Spirit from us. And Mary said, you know, it could be that God has removed himself in Old Testament terms for all sorts of reasons having to do with, with his justice and his judgment. Or it could be that this is actually God's word to America, this situation that you could either call a disaster or some form of blessing, whatever you do, that that's God's word to American contemporaneity, pro or con. Or you could believe, as I had initially said, well, it, it, God, you know, please, oh Lord, you know, come on, we're waiting. Jim Monroe once said at Caster Norfolk when I confided him a certain sense of 
desperation I was having in my parish ministry. And he said, all right already, God, you know, come on, we're waiting, please. And it could be that. But what I was struck by was to get out of gear, get out of the idea that you know what's happening. I, I do believe in God, and I believe in a personal God, and I reject a view of Christianity, or I feel a view of Christianity that is entirely horizontal and based on causes, and community is, uh, is inaccurate to the overall, and really the more important prior element in the Christian faith, which is the vertical connection with a personal God who actually is directly involved with one's life. That, I believe. Now, <clears throat> But I realized that I was sort of in a gear. Get out of gear uh, on this. You may be wrong. God is working, but he's working in a different way, paging Susanna Layton from last week. Now, um, I want to end by referring to Les Jackets because, again, that's what they do. They always take, it's in the fourth verse, or they do the, the, the response and the, re, the refrain and the stanza and the refrain and the stanza, and usually in music it's in the second stanza where the guitar solo is that things come together, and then the third stanza is a kind of repetition resolution of the first in light of the second, which is instrumental in a solo, but they always have their blowout in the third or the fourth movement of the song, in, not invariably, but in 70% of their songs, it's in the last movement, and I wondered, I fantasized once about asking Eddie Angel, who appears to be the spokesman right now for this group, what are you doing? And I, I met Eddie Angel once, he won't remember it, because he was wearing a mask, and I was with a bunch of people asking for his autograph, but he, he, he would probably say, you know, we don't think of it that way, we don't think of this in some form of gestalt or some format. We just do what comes naturally, and I guess probably we do kind of feel free at the end to do our thing. Maybe he'd say something like that, but he wouldn't put it in a narrative. But I would say that the freedom of the Los Straitjackets uh, instrumentalists to get out of gear in their last uh, movement of their covers is an amazing and uh, powerful and inspiring musical effect to which I want to draw your attention. And we're going to close this cast with a, a song which defines that format, uh, which is from their second Christmas album, which probably comes, I would say, at a point of in the last third, at the beginning of the last third of the Crab movies, the beginning of the last third of their more recent oeuvre is their second Christmas um, Christmas or Noel uh, CD, which um, is very good, and their rendition of Silent Night. Listen to it now. You know when they say now when you get out of YouTube or a reel, wait for it, wait for it. In this, please wait for it. It starts so slowly. It's like the first third of life. The waves are uh, ebbing and flowing against the beach in Hawaii. Uh, here they come, it goes. The beat comes in California and it goes. The, uh, that's life. And then you have a tune uh, with a very resonant uh, kind of feedback buzz guitar and that goes on a long time and by then you just want to shut it off it's incredibly boring and totally full of malaise but then in the last part of the song they get out of gear and that's what life really needs to be when you are even when you're in gear you want to be in gear and out of gear at the same time and for me I want to be more and more out of gear thank you so much here is Silent Night Rock.
Thank you.